0: Welcome to Snape Chat, the voice of the Snape Dome, a podcast where we discuss all things Snape, always. Jonah says we dive into the world of the bravest man we ever knew in art, fanfic, meta, and more. This is Snape Centric with episode 18. This time I talk with author Marshmallow McGonigal about her writing and the rare pairing of Snape and Tonks, also known as Snox. She'll also read from her works at Topography of Winter and Driftwood. Enjoy the show. This is Snape Centric, and I'm here with Marshmallow McGonagall, an author, and we are going to talk about her and her work. Um, Hi, it's lovely to see you. Nice to have you here. (laughs) You have such an interesting name, Marshmallow McGonagall. How did you come up with that?
1: Um, I have to admit, I love Professor McGonagall. She is one of my favorite characters from when I was little. I really loved her, Uh and um, I think being Scottish, it seemed natural that I would take her name when I was finding a way in fandom. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, she's a character that I really love. And, uh, you know, I sort of thought, oh, I I feel safe with her name. I'll feel safe there. Mm -hmm. And uh, the marshmallow bit, honestly, because while I was setting up Tumblr and I needed to find a name, Mm -hmm. I had a little box of Rocky Road tray bakes, And I was looking at that and I saw the marshmallows and I thought, "Ah, marshmallow McGonagall. That's uh-huh. who I can be. So that's how I came to be Marshmallow McGonagall.
0: Oh, well, that's great. I love it. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm very fond of it. Oh, yeah. So tell us a bit about yourself.
1: I like McGonagall. I'm from Scotland. I'm in Scotland. And I I've always written and I enjoy writing a huge amount. It's really important to me. I enjoy creating for fandom, but I have always, always written. And it's a, it's, I say, it's something really important to me and I enjoy doing it and I get a lot out of it and I feel it's a really important way to be able to create and to connect with whole loads of different things in your life. So
0: that's me oh, as the writer. That's great. What brought you to the Snapedom?
1: I was really trying hard how I ended up in the and not to reflect too much on other themes, but I think it was a little bit at a time and I ended up here. I... I think the big thing was the Snape Bang, the 2019-2020 Snape Bang. Mm -hmm. I'd already been writing about Snape and I already knew like a handful of artists and a handful of writers, but I think it was the Snape Bang which sort of fully showed me what the community was. And I even now I only feel like I know actually a portion of it, but that I think was how I came to be properly introduced to it. Uh Oh, great.
0: Yeah. Because it's such a neat place to be. That's that's what i think anyway it's Um, a
1: very interesting place yeah you find this really curious mix of writing and art and meta about this one character and it's amazing how much it spans and how it can go from really serious topics to really fun ones and sometimes mm -hmm. in the same uh, discussion too
0: oh yes yes i i often find that when we're having discussions that it well be very serious, and then you know, we'll go to something like Snever or something like that.
1: Yeah, uh-huh. and it's the same people as well. I think we are all have multitudes in us.
0: Uh-huh. Um, so true, really. I uh, embrace
1: it, and yeah, I, I love it. I think it's really interesting, and it's, I think, a very unique place in many ways.
0: Uh huh, great. So, you've said you've always been a writer, so from grade school, or what do you call it, primary school? A primary school,
1: I have tucked away in a box a little book I made when I think I was about four or five. And it's got huge letters which are misspelled and I think it's bind back to front. Um, but, you know, I consider that my first book. Um, oh. And I, <laughs> I, I've i always written all the way through school. I wrote and they're, they're, they were sort of the equivalents of what we would call sort of one shots, I suppose. And mm-hmm. then about sort of 14 years ago, I started Writing much more seriously and tucked me on hard drives, I have a lot of original manuscripts. Um, and then a few years ago, I came to fandom, and I really, I discovered something that I really, really enjoyed, which was, you know, writing fan fiction, which mm-hmm. was a really new way and interesting way to engage with writing. Oh yes, all right.
0: Well, we're so glad that you you do that. Um, Thank just, you. I I just love your writing. So
1: your comments are always a joy to see. They really are. It's, um, it's not always easy being a rare pair writer. So it's always mm-hmm. lovely to get that feedback when it's there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there should be more visibility for Snogs, I think.
1: It's a, I think there's that wonderful meme I see sometimes on Tumblr about the ships, which are, you know, like cruise ships and some which are like supercarriers and others which are like tugboats. And then at the uh-huh. very bottom, you I like pool noodles and rafts. And I think of Snonks is my little pool noodle. Oh. And I really love it. <laughs> it's a small ship, but I think everyone uh-huh. who ships it really loves it.
0: Okay, let's see. Oh, how long have you been publishing your work online?
1: I, Under different names. Um, there's been stuff going back a long way, but in terms of fan fiction, it's 2019. That was when I first started sharing fan fiction. It was 2019
0: your work is so often lyrical and flowing with imagery in particular your shorter pieces is that a difficult effect to achieve
1: um sometimes i think it depends on what i'm writing like for some pieces Mm -hmm. it just seems to be there and it's on the page and i mean i edit everything before i post it but sometimes i feel like it needs very little editing and then there's times where it takes much, much longer. And obviously like, the longer the piece, the longer it will take anyway. But sometimes when, you know, trying to focus on that kind of imagery, it can, I think there's a piece of advice that people really don't always like, but it's what are you trying to say? And I think mm-hmm. when you're trying to go for something lyrical and flowing, you really have to know what you're trying to say. And I don't know if I always succeed, but I know that um, like with The Cabin, which is quite a long one shot, it's about 10,000 words. Mm-hmm. That one because originally it was meant to be posted for Christmas and ended up being posted in January I think that one trying to make sure I got the imagery right that took a while and I always almost always listen to music whilst I write and the songs I'm listening to are a huge influence because you have the rhythm and the beat and the cadence and it's trying to channel that into the writing. And sometimes I say that comes easily with a song and if you know like exactly what the story is going to be, it's easy to find a way for that to fit in and flow together. And like if you know exactly what imagery it is, it's very easy to stick to that theme. But sometimes when you're really trying to figure out a theme underneath it all, that can take a little bit of time. And sometimes I've written a piece and I've had to come back and actually, Say to myself that isn't really working the way I want it to. But with a bit of time, you can find out the idea underneath it, and you can thread it back in. And I often sort of think of my writing um, as it's bit like a tapestry as well. You know, you're trying to weave in all these different aspects of it, and you know, you'll suddenly see when you step back. And sometimes you have to step back, and maybe that's for a couple of days, maybe that's for a week. And when you come back, that's when you can see that's the bit where it wasn't working, and It just needs that bit of distance to figure it out. But I think part of doing it is I say, like, I rely a lot on music. I have that always, you know, I'll have like a playlist for pretty much every story. But I'll like know what my, the type of imagery is. And like when I'm out and about, I will be, because a lot of it's nature based or, you know, water based and things like that, because I always Mm -hmm. think of water as a very Slytherin element. And I think for, you know, Tonks and Hufflepuffs, you've got that very sunny natural elements so when I'm out and about and I live in a beautiful place I'm very fortunate I'm I can see fields from where I am right now um it you know trying to focus on those things when I'm out and about and sort of see well like so what is so beautiful about what I'm looking at where is the imagery in that how would I you know if I could whip out you know my computer right now how would I write that and I think a little bit of it is from that practice and it is a practice of observing the world and observing it as a writer or as you know an artist would Mm -hmm. be observing it you know if we don't think it's strange if you see an artist sitting down and making little sketches of what they see or a photographer taking lots of small shots and I think as a writer you kind of have to mentally do that as well and it isn't inherently just sort of nature or something like that but when you see people out and about you know if you see Particular action or a particular emotion, or even if you're watching TV, I can find sometimes like I can have a movie on or a show, and there's just a particular moment, and it can be like a gesture or something. And if I can think about that gesture, it then feeds into
0: the story itself. Wonderful! That's that's really great. (laughs) That's (laughs) thank you. um... I'm always so in awe of you, writers, but it sounds like you just make a whole. Lifestyle of it.
1: I think anyone who's creative, you know, it kind of gets in everywhere. <laughs> There's no uh-huh. escaping it. You know, you are a writer, you are an artist, and I think mm-hmm. that's what people mean when you know, even if you're not typing away or writing on a sheet, you are still a writer. You are still an artist. You're still processing things through that lens.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I, I do believe like anyone can do it. I think it, it's just taking that time. And also, the really, really tough part is this practice as well. It's mm-hmm. knowing that. Sometimes you have to sit there and you have to write out 10 versions of the same paragraph because there's a nugget in there, but you've got to dig it out. And, you know, sometimes you have to pick away an idea before you find it. And I I think some of it is that that you just, you do also get used to sort of typing things out. And I've got legions of works in progress on my Google Docs and on hard drives. And Mm -hmm. I've got lots of notes and so many things, which... You know, uh, they haven't yet made it there to a finished story. But, you know, it it takes time to do that. And sometimes I think it's all like those ideas. You also unintentionally like nurture those ideas through works in progress, which don't actually make it to completion. And sometimes I've taken an idea from an old story which wasn't working or, you know, two stories and not quite put them together. But I've taken enough of the elements from one that I can't use anymore. But it's really enriched Mm -hmm. in the current story I was working on.
0: Great. Okay. You've written a series of stories about Snape and his friendship with Minerva McGonagall. Are they your bro TP?
1: Um, I really love them together. When Mm -hmm. I think of just the seven books or the eight movies, whichever one you take, I do think of them in that light. Mm -hmm. But I think my bro TP is actually Snape and Narcissa. Um, I love them having that kind of relationship. I think it's interesting to ship them together, you know, as an OTP, but I actually, I really love them as a bro-TP and I love writing them as that. And that's not to say I don't like Snape and McGonagall as a bro-TP. I think within a pure, like, canon setting, Mm -hmm. it feels very, very honest to that environment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think you have to read very far between the lines of the books to feel like there must have been some kind of friendship there. You know, the betrayal she feels in the end of Half-Blood Prince is huge, it seems. It's not just Dumbledore. I think she feels betrayed by Snape as well. But... No, I think if I'm, you know, letting my imagination go free, I think it's Snape and Narcissa. I really love the idea that they have quite a tight friendship Mm -hmm. and they they get up to various shenanigans together.
0: That sounds like fun.
1: I think that, you know, she's, you know, there's a lot of different women in Snape's life, you know, and Mm -hmm. it clearly wasn't the easiest relationship with his mother. And I think... And and the way I write it, you know, I think Poppy ends up being very much like a mother figure to him. And mm-hmm. I feel like McGonagall is possibly the aunt slash older sister kind of vibe, whereas mm-hmm. I feel like Narcissa is the like younger sibling and like, come on, let's do this. And I feel like she's hiking up her robes and saying, come on, we can do this. I think, you know, they're quite good fun at getting into trouble together and getting out of trouble together in various ways. And I just feel like there's has to be some kind of implicit trust there because and I always forget that this isn't actually canon, but I love the trope of Snape being Draco's godfather. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there would be a huge amount of trust there between the two of them to be able to have that kind of relationship. I don't think it would be a purely sort of political maneuvering type thing to have happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Your stories often feature a relationship between Snape and Tonks, also known as Snogs.
1: What draws you to this <laughs> Yeah, they're my OTP. Everything about me draws me. I I love the way they contrast each other. I love that mm-hmm. he's the Death Eater and she's the Auror. I love what they have in what they have that's similar. You know, they've both got these pure blood Slytherin mothers. Tobias Snape obviously was a Muggle. Ted Tonks is a Muggle born, but they have a huge amount of Muggle in their upbringing in contrast to quite a severe angle of pure blood wizardry and they obviously are both very connected to the death eaters of the community you know he's one of them and you know she is the niece of death eaters it's uh i think it's a very interesting contrast of positions to take on in the world you know for her i think it's very natural to become an auror for him he obviously became a death eater and i think for them to find actually a lot of common ground you know he has become a spy and I think they ultimately they're fighting for the same thing but doing it from very different angles and I think the respect of the power that each of them has you know he very clearly is a powerful wizard but equally I think she's a very powerful witch I mean to become an Auror is actually to be using a lot of very difficult dark magic you know it's because I think a lot of people confuse the Aurors with the wizarding police and they're something separate so you have the Department of Magical Law Enforcement and then you have the Ors. The oars are actually very different. They're not dealing with small things. They are trying to hunt down Voldemort. trying to hunt down his sympathizers. They're trying to keep the wizarding world safe in a very specific way. Oh. So I think between the two of them, um, I'd say that there'd be common ground and acknowledgement that there wouldn't be many people who would understand their perspective what it is to be engaging with dark magic uh-huh. um, so you're, that would be like part of it
0: okay you're breaking up a little bit sometimes I turn off the video just oh, I'm sorry to... oh no it's not your fault <laughs> but um so it was nice seeing you and we'll keep talking though <laughs> I, um, I but yeah I, first I think... use it. yeah oh go ahead
1: No, it was just to sort of follow up with, you know, um, the two of them together that I, you know, I think he's having to maintain his cover, and she can't risk her integrity. And I think there's, you know, he's very much a Southern, she's very much a Hufflepuff. And I think that's a really interesting contrast. But also, I think they really complement each other, you know, very, very well. And You know, of course, it's also great fun when you're writing in the canon timeline, you know, within hours, they can go from like sleeping together to being prepared to kill one another. And neither of them are going to share to sort of shy from that task either.
0: Do you write about other other pairings
1: of fandoms? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've written Harry Potter Twilight crossovers, which are incredibly rare and they're just very, very small and very, very rare. But otherwise, I don't write for other fandoms. I've written for a lot of different pairings. Um, I find it really an interesting challenge to see what other characters could be put together. But, you um, know, mm-hmm. Snape and Tonks are definitely my OTP and I much prefer writing for them. But what I do enjoy is I enjoy, within those stories, I enjoy writing about Andromeda and Ted. I enjoy writing about Moody and Kingsley, Sirius and Remus, um, mm-hmm. Savage and Charlie, Draco and Hermione and Narcissa and Lucius. Um, so, you know, I, I enjoy those, like, within those stories. So that's, Mm -hmm. I get to explore them on a very low level within bigger stories.
0: Oh, one scenario that is common for many of your Snock stories has severus healing talks of dark magic curses incurred during battle. How did you come up with such an interesting premise?
1: Um, That first properly came up with Skinny Love. And Mm -hmm. I remember I published that it went up on AO3 the first day of lockdown in here in the UK. Oh. And I just knew I wanted to write something miserable. I didn't mm-hmm. think anyone was going to read it. because <laughs> I thought I'm going to kill characters. It's going to be really, really sad. And then people mm-hmm. read it. And I had your lovely comments throughout. It. And of course, there's a the beautiful piece, Healing Her, that came from it too with Mad Fantasy. Um, and I love that. Oh, I, yes. I adore that piece. But the scenario, to be honest, just felt very natural. You know, it felt like it'd be kind of an inevitable part of their relationship that, um, you know, I think if you're dating an order, you've got to, you know, cope with someone turning up bloodied and injured quite a bit, possibly because it's your fault, which is another interesting thread. But, you know, with, with Skinny Love, it, it was this very specific thing that I felt that during Order of the Phoenix, because that's when it starts. It kind of starts at the very beginning of Order of the Phoenix. I felt. Very clearly, you know, Tonks and Kingsley are part of the Order. She would be doing work for the Order. And because of that, she wouldn't be going to St. Mungo's. But I also feel there'd be like a natural uh, suspicion for Orrs of going to St. Mungo's anyway, because it's a hugely vulnerable thing for them to let themselves be healed and to, you know, be in that position. I, yeah. And the other aspect of it is, you know, they don't want anyone knowing what they've been getting up to. And it'd be quite obvious they were doing something of a particular caliber if they're turning up to St. Mungo is badly injured. Mm -hmm. But also, because we know this from the books, we know this explicitly from the books, Snape is really very skilled in treating dark magic, you know, and and dealing with curses and people being harmed, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's, oh gosh, which book is it? It's Half-Blood Prince, um, The cursed Necklace is taken to him in... Yeah, it's also Half Blood Prince. We later find out he's made the Golden Potion for Dumbledore. You know, he he's done a lot of work with, you know, healing people. And so it feels oh. like it'd be natural that the Order would call on Snape to heal Tonks. Um, And I feel like being a Metamorph Magus would kind of naturally throw up other barriers as well. But, oh. you know, I think it's because she would have a tendency to push herself further than many others. And so what she would incur would need really specialist healing. So, in that respect, it Yeah, a very natural scenario that she would get injured and he would be the one to heal her and a very important way for them to connect. And I think for him to show and prove without any expectation of reciprocity that he could be kind and gentle. You know, that's Mm -hmm. I think that's within the first chapter of Skinny Love. You know, that's how it all kicks off is that she's aware that he has always been kind and gentle with her. And, you know, he's not doing it simply because he has to. is being kind and gentle because he wants to be, because that's actually something that he is capable of being, and I think it's um, it's, it's a way for them to connect, a very you know significant way. And her job, her attitude, her way of being is that she's going to end up repetitively in those situations. So it means there's that constant opportunity for them to end up in that situation together. Um, And I I say that was very specific to Skinny Love. And I mean, he was going out to Lupin Cottage. And, you know, it was a very good construct to let them be in a room together alone. But it did feel like a very natural way as well that they would develop a relationship. And, you know, most of my other stories, it happens at Hogwarts, they're in his quarters, or they're at Rowan Cottage, eventually at Rowan Cottage anyway. Um, But for Skinny Love, no, I I like the idea of keeping it as canon as possible. That's what I really wanted with Skinny Love was how could I make my OTP as canon as possible, which is why I killed people apart from Ted. Ted lived. Ted had to live. So, yeah, yeah, I keep saying it, but, you know, it seems like a very inevitable and natural way that their relationship would develop. And it's her being vulnerable, but actually it's also him being vulnerable. To be kind and gentle is for him to be vulnerable. Um, and she you know doesn't show cruelty to him she shows gratitude and you know he stays with her when she's sick and you know it's very telling I think the one time
0: and here we lost audio please forgive the break I don't know if you can gather your thoughts a little bit again after all that (laughs) we've
1: been talking about skinny love and that was where it very specifically came from in terms of its snake healing tonks. Um, I think that's where we were.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And to me, I, I say it's a very natural part of the relationship and it seemed very inevitable and a very strong opportunity for them to develop trust between each other. You know, she's having to surrender in order to allow herself to be healed, and he's having to open himself up and show that actually he is capable of using dark magic in a very different way because i don't imagine healing curses caused by dark magic is a very fun experience Mm -hmm. so you know i think it's this vulnerability for both of them that happens in that space and yeah it's just a very natural you know progression you know of their relationships that's what would happen That you know the, the auras are not going mm-hmm. to be going to the mungos especially the ones who are working for the order and he as we know from canon is the best person to be dealing with those kinds of injuries i suppose you would call them um they're not dealt with by a poppy or generally speaking other healers he's the one who people go to when they are you know attacked or cursed or in some way harmed by dark magic and I think for them together it's there, there's an element of conflict in it because you know there's that challenge of he's complicit in it to a degree, but on the other hand, she is perhaps not always fulfilling her role as an aura completely honestly because of the interaction that they have together. So it's a very interesting space for them to be in. And you know, I, I think in aura they're gonna be, you know, quick on the draw. I don't imagine that they take failure very bad very well. So, you know, I think they take it quite right. badly. So I would think that it would take someone like Snape to be able to be the one to heal someone like Tonks, mm-hmm. and you know, within I say the skinny love stories, which I say as close to canon as I could make it without you know being canon. Right. It the, you know there was it seemed actually very natural to say how they would come to be together, and outside of you know um, those stories, so you know like the antidote or the topography of winter, you know it seemed again it seemed like natural that he would be the person to try and heal her you know and she's going to be getting injured she's very clearly in very dangerous situations and if you know if she's going to seek help it has to be from someone she trusts and you know he very clearly can be kind and gentle uh but yeah i think as well it's, it's a very interesting way for them to communicate i think that surrender and becomes a form of communication i think that his healing becomes a kind of communication because it isn't just that they're doing it, it's how they do it, it's how they engage with it. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, he has to accept and deal with his part in it. He has to accept that, you know, one day, for whatever reason, he might not be able to, even if she doesn't understand all of his role within the Order mm-hmm. or with Dumbledore or, you know, with the past. I think there's no getting away from the fact that she understands he is in a very, very difficult situation. And it isn't just a way of um, them being together, but it's a way of saying, you know, if she's turning up or if he's, you know, because he. And it's one thing I've always tried to have in the stories. He always asks if he can heal her, sometimes a bit more gruffly than others. He tells her, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, move. Um, but, you know, a lot of times if he says, will you allow me to heal you? May I, you know, will you let me? And. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a very important part of their relationship. And I actually feel like Snape would be someone for whom consent would actually be really, really important. And I yeah. feel like that would extend to a lot of different aspects. And I think healing is a very intimate thing. And there's a huge difference between a curse being dealt with and, say, the situation that happens in the topography of winter, where I was very conscious when I wrote it, you know, I wanted it to be this very, very, very intimate story and yet there's nothing that might normally be called intimate going on but it's him healing her mm-hmm. essentially that's it there's nothing else that happens mm-hmm. very clearly there's a dot 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 at the end of the fake and we kind of know what's going to happen but you know it's, it's very clear how intimate an experience that is for them both and I think The Antidote was a very interesting story for me because that's where I changed it, but because it's not inherently an injury that is directly from the battlefield, it is something, it's, it's the way in which she is suffering. I don't know whether or not to give spoilers for this fic. <laughs> um, but, you know, like in The Antidote, you know, it's that is a place where they come back to one another and because they, they are technically apart at that time because that's, you know, the... That set during like the summer of before half-blood prince you know he's got peter pedigree staying with him so she's mm-hmm. a grim old place with sirius who lives because we like it when people live and you know it, she's done something she maybe shouldn't have done she didn't think he would be there you know it's it's very much this difficult place where they then have to connect in a very different way and he has to like confront they've got to confront their feelings with each other and you know they've come together because she needs healing And that conflict becomes something else. And again, that is a bit where I was very aware that I wanted it to be very intimate without there being what we would inherently consider intimacy happening. And, you know, the ending of it, I say the ending of it, but the conclusion of it is essentially, you know, The question of whether they still need each other whether they still trust each other do they still love each other and it's those unspoken things which they are confronting in that space because even no matter what their feelings towards each other they are still consenting Mm -hmm. they are still having to be vulnerable they are still having to surrender and he is still being kind and gentle and you know they are it's it's that very difficult place where it's you know are they going to be against each other in that space or is it going to be the two of them together against what has brought him into that space and i think that's what's really one of the very interesting things about having him heal her
0: yeah it, it is so striking and i just always enjoy reading it
1: thank you so much as <laughs> i said i love your comments it's always been wonderful to see them Bob, Bob, they bring me such a lot of joy yeah. they always make me smile and um it's you know it's it's wonderful you know to know that people can enjoy your stories and you know i it's it's always a bit scary to share something and like put it out there in the world. And so, yeah, it's, it's always lovely. And I I think people underestimate how important comments are to writers. You know, it's not just like, you Mm -hmm. know, we want validation. It's actually, did you like it? Did it work? Did you, Mm -hmm. you know, what was it you liked? What was it that was enjoyable? Um, Because that's also Mm -hmm. how you get more of the things that you want to read. Because if you tell a writer, I really like this, you're going to find more of that. It's kind of, right. We're very we're actually very easy creatures when you think about it. And uh you know, it's it's wonderful to be able to have that comments and that interaction. And I also I absolutely adore the heal her piece by Mad Fantasy that you commissioned um from Skinny Love. That was wonderful. And I, I reference and look at it often. And it was very interesting. Nice. And I think that was also an interesting thing is when you asked me, you know, I can't remember exactly what it was, but like what would it look like when he was healing her? Would there be different lights? Would there be you know, these things going on, and I had to stop and think, wow, mm-hmm. oh, actually, I hadn't considered those little aspects. And that mm-hmm. really made me consider the fact that, you know, if someone is being cursed by dark magic and it's going into their body, that has to come out of their body. Right. And, um, you know, it it really is it's that kind of thing which is so thought provoking because invariably we can't know all the questions there might be about our work. So when we can be asked questions, it really makes us think. So thank you very much for that it's skinny love was a wonderful writing experience and as i say my goal with it was to try and make how could i make them as canon as possible how could i you know so that's why again i don't know whether i can give spoilers or not i've already said like people die but certain children are born and certain people are not there and the connections they have you know are similar Mm -hmm. to what is in canon and yeah it it was to try and explore that and you know him healing her was a very significant part of that and I remember one of your comments on it in like the penultimate or the last chapter was, you know, about how he had healed her, but she had to heal herself. And that was very much a significant part of it. You know, she was the one who had to be able to come back to him after everything that he had done for her. And it was one of those big themes I, in my own head that I had through. It was her feeling of it had always been him. Like there was no different version of him after the war it had always been him and he was all of these things mm-hmm. and you know it's very important to me that part of that was he's the man who healed her who showed her kindness who showed her gentleness and having to say that wasn't a false part of him but neither was actually the death teacher a false part of him you know you know that person who killed mm-hmm. dumbledore that was not a false part of him either Right. Um, and so I think I think that's right. You know, the healing thing is, again, it's interesting is it incorporates very, very real aspects of who he is as a character. And I think to be healed is to have very real aspects of who Tonks is as a character, which is someone who mm-hmm. is putting herself in very dangerous situations. As I say, you know, the Ministry of Magic has the Department of Magical Law Enforcement who are not the Aurors. The Aurors are separate. And mm-hmm. um I would imagine at the end of the day, they come home pretty bashed up and scraped up. You know, right. they're not chasing petty thieves down Diagon Alley. Um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're protecting people from unforgivables. So, you know, it, mm-hmm. it presents that extreme. And I, I really love that dynamic between them.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would you be willing to read a passage or two from your work? Yes,
1: I would. Um, especially because I think we have a more stable connection now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. I have two pieces in front of me. I have The Topography of Winter, and I have Driftwood. I'd be happy mm-hmm. to read both of them. To yes. go chronologically, <laughs> I have to go chronologically. The Topography of Winter um, is the earlier piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, this fic is, I always try and put times or seasons on my fix because they often tend to happen in like really obscure, tiny corners of canon. So I want people to know that when I say Order of the Phoenix, I actually mean this kind of weird month that I, you know, shoehorned right. in. So the Topography of Winter is a fic that is set immediately after the Battle of the Department of Mysteries at the end of Order of the Phoenix. And it's a fic where I have this long-standing headcanon about Tonks being injured after it. And we know in canon that she was injured. But I have this headcanon that she, as a result of Bellatrix's curse again I don't think I'm giving away plot before I read it um, read it out to you but to explain it I, I've long term had this head canon that she has the scar across her back in the skeleton the shape of a skeleton of a tree in winter and I, for a very long time I'd actually wanted to write down the story I had in my head behind that because mm-hmm. sort of no matter what universe it were I'm writing them in no matter what storyline she always has this scar and in my head, this is how it originated, because it was how, like, I always wanted to write a and then I finally, I love solstices, I love seasons, I love mm-hmm. the significance of those times of year, and the change um, in summer and winter, you'll see that a lot in my stories, you know, summer and winter. I think because, especially up here in Scotland, I think people forget how far north we are, you know, like in the mm-hmm. summer, you know, sunset, like, and I mentioned it in the fic, you know, um, the... You know, sunset doesn't happen until like just before midnight, you know, if you're very, very north light, like just for midnight before, you know, it's, it's really, really getting dark and the sun goes down and then obviously it's coming up really early. And so obviously for Hogwarts, that's what they were living with. They would have the solstice in the summer and they would not have a lot of darkness, but like in the winter, you know, they get mm-hmm. very used to, you know, the sun coming up at like nine o'clock in the morning and it sets at three in the afternoon. Um, right. so you know, the, Those contrasts of, you know, summer and winter and light and dark very much for me pull into those themes of Snape and Tonks that he mm-hmm. has a lot of darkness in him which sounds really moody and I always think of Tonks as being very much of summer you know mm-hmm. his birthday's in January and I always had Canon her birthday as being in July so I like that difference um if, you know summer and winter so yeah I was just yeah. to give a bit of background as to where this fit came from it's, it's a long-standing chance for me to ramble about how she got her scar. So yeah, this is the Topography of Winter. It happens um, at the very, very end of Order of the Phoenix after the Battle of the Department of Mysteries. And it's a little over 4,000 words. It, just in case anyone needs to know, the rating is with but there are no archive warnings that apply. It, it does, it is an angsty fic. It is about curses and recovering from a curse and healing and scars. And uh, yeah, so the Topography of Winter. The castle spent the day basking under clear blue skies, the ancient stones soaking up the first heat wave of summer, and still the dungeons were cool, the corridors lit by torches which left pools of orange light rippling across the flagstones. No matter how the temperature soared, Snape kept himself fully covered, unable to consider taking his robes off for even minutes, unable to let there be one last layer keeping his dark mark hidden, keeping him safe, each button done up, each layer weighing him down when he left the dungeons and went to the upper floors of the castle. All the while, Sprout could be found barefoot in the greenhouses with her straw hat at a tilt. Flitwick had given up on even his waistcoat and kept his shirt sleeves rolled up, showing off his tattoos. McGonagall didn't attempt to hide her envious glances at Sprout, but kept her shoes on nonetheless, though she did resort to wearing lighter short sleeve dresses. Dumbledore wore voluminous robes along with socks and sandals, striding around the castle and attending to all the business needing his attention following Umbridge being relieved of her duties a few days earlier. Days? Was it only days since the battle at the Department of Mysteries? Since he and the other heads of houses gathered in McGonagall's office and waited for news. All any of them could do, wait. They passed a time debating which McGonagall's bottles of fire whiskey and muggle whiskey they'd crack open once the ordeal was over. When there was a knock on the office door and Dumbledore walked in, Sprite picked up an 1821 vintage of Bogdans and was pouring drams before the reinstated headmaster could finish telling them all that had happened. Voldemort was back. No one was killed. A biscuit would be wonderful, Minerva. Do you have shortbread? Umbridge suspected to be in the Forbidden Forest. Snape poured himself another measure of the amber liquid and only just stopped himself from sloshing half the glass over Flitwick when Dumbledore started detailing the injuries. A handful of students were being tended to by poppy in the hospital wing. Remus and Kingsley had sustained some injuries, but were being looked after by Sirius and Moody, respectively. And then fedora was at St. Mungo's after being cursed by Bellatrix. Snape dined the fire whiskey too quickly and coughed, but Sprite's concern about her former student was lighter. Dumbledore's return, swiftly followed by Voldemort's fury of firing witness, Snape came back from Malfoy Manor when the rising sun was casting Hogwarts in gold. His associates split between punishments meted out by the Ministry and Voldemort. He suspected the ones in Askaman considered themselves lucky, if only until the walls of the fortress closed in around them. The days spent dining potions to keep him awake, he waited for news not knowing how it would reach him. While Bellatrix was keen to boast of her hit, her happiness was quickly quelled by Voldemort, and Snape claimed nothing more than her being the culprit. Poppy came to his quarters a little before midnight, Tonks had discharged herself from St. Mungo's against the healer's advice and was recuperating at home with Andromeda and Ted looking after her. When Andromeda held updates, Poppy shared them with Snape. Little had changed over the past few days. Tonks was alive. She was home, being a terrible patient according to her mother. Poppy promised him she would try to see Tonks over the weekend and find out all she could. He could only nod. With Umbridge gone, Death Eaters captured and Friday's dawn bringing with it the solstice. The castle was brimming with joy. Voldemort's return paled in comparison to Dumbledore's. People were desperate for happiness and clung to what was nearest. The longest day, the weekend, the heat. Snake wanted the cool darkness of his rooms. He opened the door to his quarters and walked inside, noticing a light gray cloak slung over one of the sofas. The lock clicked back into place and broke the spell cast on him by the worn linen he wanted to believe he would recognise anywhere. He strode through his quarters and towards the bedroom, his robe smacking against the furniture and doors in his haste. She was lying on her belly, hugging a pillow, the blankets on the bed crumpled beneath her. An old potions lecture was playing on the gramophone. Seeing him, she smiled and began to slowly push herself up. Finite. The lecture stopped. She knelt on the bed as he crossed the distance between them. He took her head in his hands and she saw his mouth. Well acquainted with the ache of waiting for weekends, this week was closer to an eternity than usual. The robes billowing for days through her thoughts were tight in her hands. He deepened the kiss and pain seared across her as she pressed herself to him. Gasping against his mouth, she pulled away and sank down. My back. He grabbed her arms and crouched on the floor. And that's where you were cursed. She nodded and buried her face in his shoulder. Eyes stinging, muscles burning, the smoldering curse barely smothered by potions ready to reignite. Which is why you were, he swore. A strangled whine escaped her when she tried to raise her head. How are you even here, he asked. Breath ragged while pain rained down on her like arrows. His robes in her hands, his stiff collar brushing her ear. His pillows and blankets, his quarters, where she was meant to be. Jailbreak. Excuse me? For the briefest moment, there were only his little words. Days spent listening to people, never hearing the one person she needed. Trying to draw in a deeper breath only made the pain flare. She licked her lips and tried to focus on his breathing. Savage, she said. I am officially recuperating at their place for a few days. The sea air and all that. Indeed. The empty fireplace appeared somehow smaller without the flames dancing in their enclosure. The absence of fire creating the wrong kind of coolness. Candles flickered from the mantelpiece and the lamps near the bed were lit, small compensations for the usual light which inhabited the room. Her back rose and fell in an ever steadier rhythm, and he wondered what lay beneath the old cotton gracing her, what evidence still marked Bellatrix's attempt. What about your recovery? he asked. I'm not. Pain echoed through her hollow laugh. Severus, they don't even know where the curse hit me, let alone what it was. I've got potions and that's it. He almost froze, except she could feel his heartbeat, could feel where his fingertips pressed into her a fraction more. I'm here, she whispered. No one's tried to extract the curse. Days, days since she was hit, days for the curse to... What did they give you? They're in the rucksack. Still grasping his robes, she leaned against him and reeled off the names of the potions as she slowly pushed herself up. Sitting back on her ankles, her hands on his shoulders, she met his gaze, and promptly wanted to lunge forward and put her arms around his neck, kiss his jaw, tell him how she missed him in ways words. He moved his hands to her hips, eliciting a shout of pain from her. Don't, she pleaded. Don't pull away. Don't touch there. Don't go. Please stay. Eyes screwed up, fingers digging into his shoulders, quick breaths to try and evade each stab of the curse should she dare draw from deeper wells. Atop the blankets, his fingers spread out either side of her on the bed. I had to hold her. I her to you. From beneath long lashes, she searched his dark gaze, the dangerous glint betraying them, the anger fenced in but still there, still reeling. The order was told the death eaters who escaped the ministry didn't escape punishment. Robes, collar, hem. Her fingers trailed across too many layers of fabric in panic, his head in her hands, her thumb brushing his lips. What words of his reached her spoke only of reports, only observations of her made it to him. They were little more than owls passing the night. How hurt are you? he repeated, and this time he didn't try to mask his fear. I don't know. Voice cracking like ice, the swells beneath rushing forth, tears streaking down her cheeks. The fractures freezing over as she fought not to go under, fought for a deeper breath, fought to remember where she was after days of dreaming. I don't know. He withdrew his wand and conjured a handkerchief. With each delicate sweep of her face, her breathing steadied. He tucked loose strands of hair behind her ear and stroked her cheek. His hands fell with his gaze to her lap as she tucked his cravat loose and undid the topmost buttons of his robes and shirt enough that she could slip her hand beneath. You're too warm, Severus. Stiff cuffs and rows of buttons, no escape for his dark mark to contemplate, no armor to be stolen with ease. Fingers stretching out to nudge her, worn cotton against his touch. He gave a small laugh and raised his head. What else am I to wear when my t-shirts continue to disappear? Her fingertips trailing out the back of his neck, he drew in a deep breath. Didn't want to admit the limits of cooling charms, didn't want her to stop. He murmured her name, a quiet plea. Now, help me up. He took her hands in his and rose billowing around him, rose with a stiffness reminiscent of apparition. Her knuckles white, he didn't waver as she pushed against him, wincing with each bend and stretch to maneuver off the bed. Barely upright, she wobbled, stumbling towards him, against him, as if he were waiting for her to catch on. His mouth was pulled up in a half-smile when she pressed her lips to his, searing pain and simple pleasures. Squeezing his hands, a week of things she wanted to say turned away in an instant, deepening the kiss, the buttons of his robes pressing against her, the thin t-shirt, no protection. She let one of his hands go, then the other, making herself pull away so she could undo his robes. Well acquainted with how the task required the attention of both hands to carefully push the cloth-covered buttons through the finely tailored buttonholes. Her gaze firmly on his robes, he let his gaze wander across her, assessing everything he could without touching her. Merlin, he wanted his arms around her, wanted to kiss her neck and undo her shorts. Her touch firm as her hands swept beneath his robes, up to his shoulders, his patience was waning. He withdrew his wand, shrugged off his robes, and threw them in the direction of the armchair behind him. There was a muffled thud as the massive fabric hit the upholstery. Her smile coy, she glanced at him and proceeded to make quick work of finishing her previous attempt on the cravat. She handed him the likes of black linen and he didn't look away from her as he tossed it towards his robes. There was a slow, soft sweep of rustling as the cravat landed on the chair and then slipped to the floor. With swift tugs, she had his shirt untucked. Her attention turned to the cuffs. First his right sleeve, the buttons undone, cuff rolled up to his elbow. Then her hands were on his left arm. She stroked the back of his scarred hand, let her fingertips trail across the intricately carved handle of his wand, cradled his wrist in both hands, her thumb brushing across the white buttons and lingering where the thread attached them. Jaw clenched, he swallowed. Wanted to look away, wanted to distract her. Each button undone, more of his dark mark emerged, and she was rolling the sleeve up, smoothing the fabric, and her hands swept down his forearm to settle around his wrist. Slowly, she raised her head and met his gaze. No more distractions. How hurt are you? He asked simply. Every inch she tried to pull up the t-shirt, a reminder of how the pain relief, poor as it might be, was wearing off. As far as her waist, when she lowered her arms, hands going to her face. Breaths dragged in, their reluctance threatening to choke her, and his hands were on the collar of the t-shirt. One quick yank and the fabric was split by a tear several inches long. Her arms fell to her sides and she stole a kiss. With the fabric gathered in each hand, he gave one more tug and the t-shirt ripped down to the hem. I like this one, she said. Where the well worn fabric likely couldn't take another reparo. I have others. He'd known she wasn't wearing a bra, but where was her holster? Glancing at the bedside table nearest the fire, he saw her one lying close by a stack of records. It wasn't as if the thin leather straps always graced her, but seeing her bare made his stomach lurch in a way he never wanted to experience again. He nudged the t shirt over her shoulders. She inhaled sharply, trying to swallow back the winds when he brushed her skin just shy of where the pain lived. The torn cotton hit the floorboards with a soft crush of autumn leaves. Turn around, he said. She shook her head and he arched an eyebrow. She stared at the floor as she undid and pushed down her shorts. Stepping out of them, she kicked the crumpled pile of clothes aside and turned around. He swore. I fell off the stairs and into the chamber after she hit me, said Tonks quietly. Her words too measured and careful, she added. Kingsley managed to break my fall with a cushioning charm. And he would do the same again, said Snape. You know that. She could only nod. The bruising and abrasions refused to betray the impact she fell from, refused to acknowledge that cushioning charms didn't soften blows so much as stop them being fatal. From high enough, water could turn to stone. Kingsley left himself open to attack so he could stop the stairs turning into an ending. Lamplight caressing her, the hostile grip of the curse thrown into sharp relief, it began on her left hip and crossed her back to branch out across her right shoulder, blade like the skeleton of a tree in winter. The curse didn't hit you, said Snape, probing his jaw. It grazed you, that's why there's no impact light. Tonks tried to speak, but all she could do was reach back, his hand taking hers, she turned around and buried her face in his shoulder. The shadows flickered, heckles raised by what was left unspoken. He kissed her hair, closed his eyes, listened to her breathing. She was alive. Merlin, she was alive. His suspicions about the potions given to her could wait. She couldn't. Will you allow me to try drawing out the curse? Yes, she said without hesitation. Yes. He pressed his lips to her hair again, then squeezed her hand. Come on. He led her back to the bed. Get comfortable. She gave a bitter laugh and he murmured apologies. Climbing onto the mattress, she didn't let him go. He kicked off his boots and knelt on the bed, relenting at her quiet plea and lying down alongside her. She lay on her front, half on top of pillows and half on top of him. Her hands slipped beneath his shirt and settled above his heart. Let this be any other night. Let her not be waiting for him to cause her pain. That time would come soon enough. How much is this going to hurt? she asked softly. More than a jinx, he whispered lips by her ear, but less than a dressing down from Moody. Her laugh like a secret, he kissed her neck. Wand in hand, his fingers spreading out where she was untouched by the smouldering curse, he sank onto the pillow beside her. Potions might dampen the fire and slowly suffocate the attempt on her life, but they would cost her too. How high was the price already? I trust you, Severus. The incantation a steady rhythm from his lips, her hand not moving from his heart. Fire found her and reignited from hip to shoulder. She arched her back, pressed against him, buried her face in the pillow. Sweat pricked on her skin and streaked across her body. Her panting didn't halt him, but brought his other arm around her, his fingers tangling in her hair. She sought his gaze, the dark glint which would surely be a glow from the flames licking her. Burning heat, the colours stolen from solstice nights, the barest hours of darkness bereft now his magic invoked the same light. Relentless words, but only the slightest movement of his body with wand work. The old curse drew from her wines, honed by centuries of pain, Mempers of agony transformed into sharp articulations while his magic wrestled the darkness creeping deeper like thorny vines, the poison resisting every inch of the way. His wand moved with an easy grace. His other hand on fingertips pressing into her through damp, tangled hair, to be able to give reassurance, but he could only offer her litanies of Latin. Days of different beds, different potions. She wanted his body, his wand, his hands. She could endure burning again for him to be the one who yielded her his belt buckle pressing against her as she lurched away from the pain, his heartbeat under her hand. And St Mungo's healers cast sidelong glances they were never quick enough to hide and spoke to each other over her bed while she drifted in the night of consciousness. At least Savage heard them before her parents. The incantations became softer, more like lullabies, until light flared and she bucked against the searing burn which chased through the path of the curse in one final protest. Her wine collapsing into a guttural moan, she rested her forehead against his The pain retreated as though reluctant to leave and the darkness softened around them while she caught her breath. A chill sauntered about the room and embraced her. He summoned a blanket from the end of the bed and pulled it over them both, then pushed back the strands of hair plastered to her face and tucked them behind her ear. A kiss to her forehead earned him a trace of salt on his lips and he stroked her cheek. Let's the air take the credit, let mediocre remedies be lauded. Her body slick beneath his hand, he traced a new scar, waiting to be memorised. I'm sorry. He could do nothing more for the scarring. The curse had forever changed the topography of her body. Ridges discernible by fingertips, terrain altered where previous scars were little more than fallen leaves on the valley of her curves. No matter her metamorphosing, this would always be beneath. If I could have done this sooner, if... You healed me. She shivered again, and he summoned another blanket, a heavier one this time. I pulled the curse from you. I was never going to get out of this unmarked. The shadows shied away from his bitter laugh. Fumbling amidst the blankets on his shirt, she brought his left hand to her mouth and pressed her lips to the backs of his fingers. His wand abandoned on the bed, he intertwined his fingers with hers and didn't protest when she stretched out so his arm fell back against the pillow, his hand still in hers. The lamp light caught the sheen of sweat his dark mark bore and the brand looked almost as if it was burning. What happened at the manor? What did Voldemort do to you? How to untangle the truth when she knew his masks, when disguises were a part of her being? The Dark Lord had a few questions for me, nothing more. Angry taunts followed him in the manor, though they fell to the wayside in the wake of interrogation. No, not interrogation, the requests for explanations, for anything to mitigate the failure, and there was nothing quite like the Cruciatus to grease the wheels of legilimency. He'd split his lip again, healed with a brief touch of his wand once away from the grinds of the manor. No battle, just survival, and the fragment of knowledge about the harm she had come to Her gaze lingered on his mouth as if she could see where his lip had bled. This wasn't how I was planning to celebrate the solstice with you, she said, stretching her fingers and holding his hand more tightly. When he moved a fraction, bringing her further on top, she eased her legs down around him. What did you have in mind? Already recognising the paths ahead, his fingertips traced how the branches spread across her. I just wanted you. Her lips hesitated in from his and the sunrise. The small of her back, there were a few other places sweeter. What was a sunrise anyway? The sun came up every day. He barely got weekends with her. And there will be others. Beneath her soft lips, barely an inch of silver on his jaw. Too many scars which didn't betray their cost. Yet across her, the curve of her back under his hand, unable to stop committing her to memory, there was work to do. He kissed her neck. You need to rest. What I need is a bath, she countered, tricking a small laugh from him. Not the reasons she expected to be drenched in sweat, to be bearing herself for him. Hands tangled in his hair, arms sinking into the pillow. Aches which could be made to acquiesce and bruises to vanish. Let him heal her to the best of his ability. I have potions to brew. Merlin at her mouth was exquisite. Severus? His dark gaze, too used to the cold, she rocked her hips and his hands slid smoothly over her, only for fingers to grasp, to refuse letting go. The tension beneath her, his own curse. Yes, almost a plea from his lips as so his mind spiraled. She always knew the way. All he knew was to hold on to her. She squeezed his hand. Let yourself stay. You need potions, he murmured, letting his fingers trace down her arm, down her body. All strength in you. I'm strong enough. As if to prove her point, she metamorphosed so her hair, returned to its usual pink, having been forced to her natural soft brown by pain. What I need is you. We had the winter solstice, he mused blazing fire, blankets and duvet, the longest night and they had only hours of it. Not the same. She knew darkness with him and wanted to share the light, feel the promise of more summers and long days. Instead, she came to him with a reminder of combat. Come have a bath with me, then I'll rest while you brew potions. Reaching down between them, she undid his belt, the clink of metal followed by a slip of leather through the buckle, the straps smacking against her thigh as another button fell prey to her fingers, and her hands on his body, raising herself up. Lifting his hips, scratching against her, he pushed his trousers down and kicked them off. There was a quiet sud as they slid from beneath the blankets and hit the floor. She undid the buttons on his shirt, her hair an avalanche over her shoulder as she looked down at each carefully stitched buttonhole. Cotton parted to reveal the new scars across him, fault lines already charted by her fingers and mouth. She was a keen cartographer of his body. His hands drifted from her thighs to her hips. He hadn't been quick enough and now she was marked more deeply by darkness than ever before. I want the sunrises and the sunsets. She pressed her lips to the remnants of torture, then raised her head and met his dark gaze. I want them both with you. One hand drifting to linger on the small of her back, the other going to her face. His thumb stroked her cheek as she brought herself closer, and he searched her eyes. I just want you. I'm here. And he let himself stay. Sunset still to come. The skies were dark and a couple of hours before midnight. The evening gave way to everything the morning longed for. Lamplight their sunrise, vaulted stone their sky. They ended the longest day the way they greeted the longest night. The end. So good. Uh, Thank you very much.
0: I just love all the imagery that you put into it.
1: I think the topography of winter is definitely like a summary of a lot of headcanons and imagery that I have for them. It was a really enjoyable story to write and it was... um, yeah I very much I enjoy that imagery of him being winter her being summer and what that means on small levels and big levels Mm -hmm. and you know I I think you know there's that line towards the end she was marked more deeply by darkness than ever before I think that's a huge part of him his relationship with how he heals her and it's Mm -hmm. it's also about her interaction with the fact that she just is happy to be with him even if it's not easy she's still happy to be there and um you know I think that contrast of the darkness and the light you Know it's a solstice, um, mm-hmm. and we know what that means to have the, the shortest night, but also they've had the longest nights all together, and it's being able to have both of those things
0: oh, so neat. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's see, the next one is Driftwood, is it?
1: Yeah, Driftwood. I think for me, Driftwood was an exercise in trying to let go of being a bit of a perfectionist sometimes. It started mm-hmm. off as a five and one you know, that trope of, you know, the five times they didn't and the five times they did. And I was trying to get this story to work. And in the end, I mean, the summary for Driftwood is simply fragments. And, you know, I realised that's just Mm -hmm. what it needed to be. It just needed to be fragments. It's post-war, immediately post-war, like as soon as the battle's over. And, you know, it follows the weeks. It's not quite months. It's maybe like it finishes maybe like the end of summer, beginning of autumn, like out of push. Um, But it ended up being this thing where I just very much had this feeling of different scenes and interestingly the, the, the title Driftwood comes from a song called Driftwood by a Scottish band called Travis and it's a beautiful, slightly mournful song that I really love and I was listening to that song the whole time I wrote it so I had this very strong imagery, I had this very strong feeling of music with the piece as a whole apart from like a sort of slight mention of there isn't really any dialogue in it at all and you know I just wanted it to show this like progression this not quite a montage or anything like that but just this progression of moments and for it to have almost a bit of a dreamlike quality to it in a funny way um it's it's, I'm going through these moments and how those moments come together of their relationship and you know most of it takes place in azkaban and obviously we get a few glimpses of azkaban in canon and you know i very much i have different you know depending on what i write i have different feelings about what would happen to snape immediately after the battle because he survives the battle of course um (laughs) and you know it's very hard to think that he wouldn't end up in azkaban for a period of time and you know i think in that kind of harsh environment I just wanted something that was like completely stripped back to kind of demonstrate and explore what that might have been like and how i say that had been for their relationship. And, you know, being an Auror, as soon as, you know, the Ministry is back in control and Voldemort is banished, she would also be back in her job. And because she survives as well, obviously, it's a pretty safe mm-hmm. assumption with everything that I write that ever, everyone survives, unless otherwise stated. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, But yeah, that's what this piece is about. So this is Driftwood, and it's got a mature rating. There are no archive warnings to apply. It's just got some pretty heavy angst, and it's, you know, mainly set in Azkaban. So um, yeah, this is Driftwood. Years to prepare, hours on the battlefield, then over all at once. What remained of the oral department finding one another and immediately beginning to pick up the pieces. Kingsley running, Moody not far behind. Voices from the Wisingamot calling out across the rubble that Snape was a danger. Snap decisions, his wrists being bound. Kingsley's apology as he took him by side along apparitions to the fortress on the rock and away from pointed wands. Waves whipping salt air around them, Kingsley pinched the bridge of his nose, held his hand over his mouth and stared out across the expanse of white horses. For my own safety, Snape forced himself to say. Kingsley's weak smile and gentle nod of admission, like bile to swallow. Into a cell and back into childhood memories, separated from his associates who graciously took up the duties of the vanished mentors. Their vicious protests, pondering echoes of screams and venoms, Snape couldn't shut away quick enough. Head in his hands, fingers digging into his scalp and drawing blood. A captive shout pulled his attention from the stone floor where the corners of boulders refused to give themselves over to easy definitions of curves or sharp edges so he could count them. The slam of Tonks' body against the wall was too quiet, as if she inhaled the impact to keep it from reaching him. The bars across one wall of his cell, affording him a glimpse of her bloody mouth. The sneer of his associate faded at her quick reflexes. Bleeding, she was gone. Water dripped from the ceiling, landing beside where he sat, somehow louder in the waves crashing against the fortress. Fingers flexing, no wand in his grasp, the urge to check, refusing to abandon him. He stood at the back of his cell while she crouched down and slid a tray through the hatch from the bars, metal scraping against stone like squawking seabirds which used the fortress for rest but never to stay. Stepping back, irons by her sides, she didn't leave. Deadlock, a forest of bars between them. Torches in the corridor drenched the granite in an orange glow which poured down the walls and pooled on the floor. The length of round in her hand, moving as if caught by a breeze, the slightest twist of her wrist brought steam rising from the bowl of soup in front of him. The standoff halted at her admission. They knew he was exacting his own punishments on himself. Little they could do to stop him. Her plea moused, words she could give no more to than her soft lips finding the shape of hope. Paralyzed by tendrils of uncertainty, he stayed frozen. Her gaze falling to the no-man's land between them the sea robbing him of the chance to hear her breathing. She was briefly a statue, then she turned and walked away, carried from him like driftwood on the water. Stones scraping against his rough prison robes, he slid down to the ground. The soup was cold before he could bring the bowl to his lips. More information wanted, a chorus of his associates crashed around him while his wrists were bound. With Savage's arms around her, Tonks was half hidden in a doorway near the gate while her colleagues escorted Snape from the prison taking him into blinding sunlight so he could be dragged to the depths of the Wisingamont, where decisions were held hostage and the wildest waves couldn't reach no matter how the white horses thundered. Kingsley, on a regular visit to the prison, Tonks by his side, quiet conversation strode towards Snape. Coming to a halt in front of the bars, her proximity violating the basic tenets of horror training, Tonks turned away to face the wall opposite, hands held behind her back. Kingsley beckoned Snape to come closer. No time for hesitation. Tonks's stance didn't falter when Snape reached a few inches past the bars, his fingertips brushing the palm of her hand. Torches blazing, her fingers frantically curled to capture his in the flickering shadows. Snape brought, him, Snape brought up to speed in the investigation, the state of affairs shared. Kingsley nodded and Tonks fell into step with him as he walked away down the corridor. No window in his cell, she was his sunrise and sunset. Every encounter became an opportunity to search for patterns in her metamorphosing. All he found in every glance she afforded him was a chance to catalogue how her eyes became darker until she found the depths of night and stayed there. Kingsley personally returned Snakes 1 to him, escorted him, wrists unbound, through rough hewn corridors. Torches flickering where the summer sun couldn't penetrate. A hand on his shoulder, the entrance looming with its rust coated hinges, which extended across thick metal a survivor of the harsh conditions, brutality on either side. Kingsley tried to speak and shook his head. His smile soft, he opened the gate. She was waiting beyond the boundary, jagged rocks on the audience once the gate closed, a protest of hinges brought to heel. Walking towards her, his time in the fortress gave him a parting gift of wondering who he was approaching, whether he was being granted a familiar escort from the island or if. On the exposed rock, unbridled doubt choked him and excited summer gusts rushed around her. Cloak billowing, she was unmoved, though her gaze fixed on him. Sunlight shattering on the sea, the sparkling glints almost a siren call. She reached out and he grabbed a hold of her like a man drowning. She squeezed his hand three times in quick succession and he tightened his grasp. A decisive turn, she sidelong disembarrated with him as white horses surged over the rocks, waves flooding the uneven ground before racing back to the sea. They operated to a meadow where a cottage stood quietly amidst trees, an island of its own in a sea of grass and wildflowers. She staggered, taking him with her, and they tumbled to the ground. Sinking onto his back, she scrambled to keep a hold of him and straddled his 2 body. Her forehead resting against his, her swallowed words and gasped breath, the sweetest sound. He found familiar paths across her body, a long reacquaintance beginning through cloak and robes. Then he took her face in his hands, his thumb brushing tears across her cheek. He searched her shining eyes. Then his name was on her lips with a smile for the first time in a year. The scent of crushed flowers blooming in the air, sky turning molten as the world was cast in gold. Birds chattered in nearby woods, and she whispered one more plea. He murmured her name, pressed his lips to hers, and his fingers drifted to tangle in her hair as she deepened the kiss. In the sunset, no bars between them, they could begin again. The end.
0: Yes, that's wonderful.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, I think that's my favorite piece of yours. It's uh, just the imagery and the... desperation
1: he's isolated he's, he's really really isolated I think mm-hmm. and um I was very much aware that he's in a position where he's constantly doubting himself you know there's these moments there's these fragments indeed like like between them and he doesn't know what to make of them he he is unsure and you know it was important to me to get those glimpses they're, they're sort of in throughout these glimpses of his past you know they're thinking about his mm-hmm. childhood or his associates the prison and you know I think his life has been characterized by different prisons you know and you know for me it it was a chance to explore that and of course the cottage at the end is Rowan Cottage which turns out a lot Mm -hmm. of my stories and uh I just I I love that last sentence you know in the sunset no bars between them they could begin again you know And, and that was their relationship starting again and you know she's wrestling that whole time as well she's wrestling and um, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. I, I'm very, very fond of that. And I think that that fic as well for me, Driftwood is a very good example of thinking this isn't working. And then when I let it be what it needed to be, it was mm-hmm. exactly the right story. I just didn't want to be a five plus one. It wanted to be fragments.
0: Oh, and the white horses.
1: Yeah, it was. As I say, I've I've always, I think it's part of the Wizarding World test or something, but I'm sure, like, there's actually, officially, there is a link between being a Slytherin and water. But I've always felt, like, very much, I love the water symbolism with Snape. You know, I, and, you know, the Azkaban is in the North Sea. It's a rough, grim place. You would have this granite prison and, you know, the White Horses and just this feeling of, and, you know, that siren call of the deep, you know, even as he's walking towards her, you you know there's this feeling of it's it's been a long journey together um for him and for her but mm-hmm. a lot within his past is like battling to stop him going towards her you know that was a very mm-hmm. very hard moment for him yeah that, that's it's like it's part of what i love about him as a character as well you know as yeah how everything intertwines you know there's no part of the story that isn't interconnected with another part
0: he's such a wonderfully complex character
1: he is i mean he's I just I love that he's full of contradictions Mm -hmm. like you know he's he's he can practice dark magic but he can heal people you know he's a spy Mm -hmm. he's yeah I I just I say I love that contradiction in him and I love how much he's and I I think I try I hope I reflect this in my stories but how much of his story is shaped by grief as well as love like we talk about Mm -hmm. you know a lot about his love for Lily but you know it's his grief his grief is a huge part of that too there's his grief for Lily, but, you know, you get the feeling there's this grief for his past as well. Mm-hmm. And I actually went back because I am um, like before we sat down, I went and I was rereading The Prince's Tale because I previous episodes and stuff that I've listened to, you know, you've referenced it, and I thought, you know, it's ages since I read that. I really should read that and I was struck by the inevitability and how as you're reading that you're thinking no like make a different choice and you already know the ending and it's it's a really affecting thing to have happen to that character and yeah it's it's interesting when I go back and look at canon because I try and in my writing I have this thing where I like try and be honest to the canon world even if if I'm not honest to canon itself and you know it's really interesting you know the kind of character that he is and like I, I love using his occlumency stories as well, and how you know it just is such a perfect descriptor for how he has lived his life, hiding things and keeping as much yes. hidden as he can, and having his guard up, you know. And it feels like it'd be very much a natural thing for him, but it's it's so interesting to see it deliberately implemented. And uh, yeah, it's just it was kind of heartbreaking. that you know, reading the prince's tale. I don't generally mm-hmm. actually read Deathly Hallows very much. And uh says, read again. I was like, oh, gosh, I'd forgotten this. And, you know, yeah, there's that tiny bit, but it's thinking, oh, you know, maybe maybe he'll be, still be alive afterwards. And he really, really isn't, unfortunately. And, you know, he tries so hard. And I love that about his character. He, he really tries hard. And, like, mm-hmm. and he's an exceptionally brave character. And, you know, that, yes. that's kind of like what I loved putting into Driftwood in the end is that it's an act of bravery when he walks towards her when he's out of prison, you know? he's terrified. He's absolutely terrified when he does that. And, you know, I, I think that gets discounted through his story a lot of just how brave he is. And I was uh listening to the Goblet of Fire and, you know, when he shows everyone his dark mark, like how incredibly brave that was, you know, for him to do that mm-hmm. and, you know, for him to be literally unbuttoning himself, you know, to do yes. that, you know, it's really a powerful moment. And, you know, I think, you know, like we underestimate certain aspects of his character because we get tied up in more prominent bits of it. I love those little moments, which are actually quite big moments.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Where can we find you online? I am on Tumblr as Marshmallow and McGonagall. I'm I'm not very active at the moment. I sometimes will hibernate for a little mm-hmm. bit. So, but I I can I am on Tumblr. I will come back. But I'm not one of these people that's on every platform, unfortunately. My fix are all on 803. three. And I always, always love to see people pop up in the comments and be able to discuss things. And as I am on Tumblr, though. You can find me there from time to time.
0: We will link to all these wonderful stories.
1: Thank you and... so, so much. It's been a joy to share them.
0: Oh, yes. What are your future plans for Snape and talks?
1: I'm actually writing a one-shot at the moment. And then I will be back to Ursa, Minor, and Hydra which is a fic I really really loved and it almost feels more like a collection of one shots in a funny way but I really really want to finish Ursa Minor and Hydra it's it's a heavy fic you know I've been very Mm -hmm. much aware that I want to take my time with it um it's a heavy fic and it's me having a flagrant disregard for timelines and grammar (laughs) Um, (laughs) so in between one shots I think I will always write one shots I love them Um, I'm finishing that thick, and then I will actually be going back to Truth or Badger my plan Mm -hmm. is to give it an edit which is not to change any of the story but is to change my sometimes very quick habits of posting chapters of that thick. and I think it could do with a slightly more deliberate eye going over it um but I want to go back to Truth or Badger I love that story so so much. I do also have more skinny love stories. So I suspect at times when I'm maybe stuck with other fits, I will be going back to Skinny Love as well. But um no, the main plan is lots of one-shots, finishing Ursa, Minor and Hydra. And then back to Truth or Badger, which is my big fic where I always tell people it's like a that meme that you see of a cat at a computer keyboard and its arms are just going up and down on the keys. (laughs) <laughs> That's fine. like the Tracer Badger. Um, <laughs> I really love that story. And it's it's where I feel like I get to explore so much more of their world. I get to spend time with Andromeda and Ted. I get to spend time with Savage and Charlie and mm-hmm. even Sirius and Remus and everybody else. It's, it's a lovely world. And of course, Poppy, because I absolutely love Poppy Pomfrey. And I think she is one of the many underrated Hufflepuffs in the world. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah that, that's that's what I want to get back to but, um I will I will always post one shots I'm I have a, a really good relationship with one shots I kind of have to write them um and I've got lots of different ideas and I love exploring those moments um I say, especially in canon I love exploring those moments when they could have come together or it's a moment in their relationship a snapshot and what might we see there yeah it, it's one of the things I love to do and I you know I love to see you know what more I can uncover of the relationship but yeah truth or badger is calling because i find a lot of one shots which are really just me wanting to write bits for truth or badger and i know they belong in that story mm-hmm. instead um, so yeah, yeah. That, that's the plan so yeah it's one shots ursa minor and hydra which is lovely because we get to have lots of little teddy in that story i think teddy's a really cool little character mm-hmm. and he is like tonk says a hufflepuff he is definitely a hufflepuff no matter what anyone <laughs> else says <is. laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I love I love writing about them as parents, actually. It was quite good fun. You know, it's, it's fun in Skinny Love to see them as parents. And it's been fun in Ursa Minor and Hydra, which is a different route to them being parents, obviously. And, uh, you know, Cottage Life, which I think suits them both very, very well. But they've got, they've got a bit of time in Truth or Badger before they get there. That's, mm-hmm. Truth or Badger is planned. It starts at the very beginning of half Blood Prince, um, and it's planned mm-hmm. to go through to the end of Deathly Hallows. And currently, it's—I think I left it in November half blood Prince and it's already 100,000 words. So it's going to take a little while to oh, get wow. to the end. But yeah, it's—it's it's interesting because since I started writing, I've written so many other things, and I've discovered lots of other different head and ideas. And mm-hmm. yeah, I love through their side. There's something about being in the dungeons and. You know, having Poppy nearby and having, a I say, Andromeda and Ted and uh, getting to have Tonks and hoax made, it's its a really nice place to, you know, try and write something that acknowledges canon, but is not trying to be devoted to canon by any stretch. So, yeah, so that's uh, that's a story I'm looking forward to getting back to. I really am. Uh, I would say that, that there will be one shots. I'm
0: always going to be writing one shots. So, Do you have any advice for first time writers?
1: Oh my goodness. Oh, I think there's a lot of advice out there, isn't there? I think when it comes to fan fiction, above all else, I think you have to try and enjoy it. If you're not enjoying it, then there's something, you know, going awry, which I mean for some people it works to ply through that. For other people, I think it's maybe time to try a different story, a different pairing. Um, but I, I do think mm-hmm. it needs to be something enjoyable. And you know, that goes for like, you know, statistics and stuff like that as well. You know, I'm a writer. I absolutely, and I'm very open about, I hide statistics. I have a skin on AO3 that I use. I think if you're going to enjoy writing, it can be very easy to get bogged down in comparisons with other writers. And, you know, I I love that phrase, comparison is the thief of joy. And so we just... It's important to you know find joy in your own writing and you know what you explore and do that. I think as well, you know, to remember that you're not obliged to share everything you write. So I've got lots of things which I haven't shared for all manner of reasons. You know, there might just be, you know, the story's not finished or it's just an idea, it's just some snippets. But you know, it's it's completely valid if you write and never share it. You know, it doesn't make you more or less of a writer by any stretch you know it's I think it's just important to enjoy doing it and again I think with fan fiction you know you have to find your own way with how you interact with canon you know I've written I've never done a full-on AU I'm I'm not that kind of fan fiction writer I, I absolutely admire people who can do it it's just not a strong point for me but you know, I very much will figure out, like, do I do something like Skinny Love, where I'm trying to stick really, really closely to canon? Or do I write something like Truth or Badger, where as it's set in half life Prince, and I got a huge way into it before I realized that um, Moody was in order, and he was still alive, and I thought, wow, I'd completely forgotten that he dies at this point in canon. Um, I was just, like, doing my own thing. Um, so, you know, I think, like, to remember that you're allowed to interact with canon in whatever way you want, you know, if you just want to write coffee shop AUs, go for it. If you want to mm-hmm. write coffee shop AUs, which happen in Hogsmeade, go for it. If you know you want to write something that's completely canon compliant or as I love the other tag, was it canon complicit? You know, it's I think there's <laughs> you know interact with it the way you want to and it's like be proud of what you make. Like mm-hmm. you're the only one who could write that. That's amazing. Be proud of it. You know, I I think we forget to be proud of ourselves, and um, you know, it's important to say, you know, I made that thing, and I wrote it, and I did that. And I think, like all writers, need to, you know, give themselves a really big acknowledgement of what they've achieved. And you know, it's it's a brave thing to put your when to put your work out there. And again, it's it's okay for people not to do. There should never be pressure to do it. When you do do it, it's kind of scary, but you know, I think it's worth doing. And I think as well, it's possibly a bit, it feels a bit counterintuitive, but I think it's important to remember to read widely, which is like not just within fan fiction, but in general, there's, I think people forget that in order to be creative, you need to take in creative things too. I think one of the best examples for me recently was is a thick lit I suppose it's only about 400 or 500 words was uh false god leave a trace I wrote that oh. actually after I read a book about sleep um there's a wonderful book about sleep and that's you know um so I had that on my mind a lot and that's you know combined with listening to a couple of songs that's where that story came from and you know I think we forget the power of you know what other it means to read other things so whether that's fiction or non-fiction it's really important to keep exploring those things and I mean if you're in a headspace where you can only read fan fiction go for it but you know maybe try watching documentaries or you know like nature documentaries or any number of things but like make sure you're taking in things because that's help what helps sort of fuel and feed your creativity and you know I think You know, what? a very good piece of advice I remember is, you know, you can't edit a blank page. You have to have something on the page and that can be really intimidating. And there are times when, you know, you you can look at a page and think, you know, my God, have I ever actually written something before? You know, how did I do this? And I think especially you have to remember that you can always edit the beginning. Like there's no rules about what you can and can't edit. Mm-hmm. so just go for it edit the beginning you know, or tell yourself or just write a note which is bullet points of it starts with this this and this and then get into your story you know mm-hmm. a really good tumblr account is ao3 comment of the day um, which i know you read oh, love yes. from quite a lot actually and they have fantastic writing advice on that front and i think it's really you know worthwhile taking some time to you know acknowledge that and you know get something Mm -hmm. on the page and it may be that in getting something on the page you actually discover a different style I mean that's where you know I've enjoyed writing drabbles which I would never call them poetry but I certainly they're they have a shifty relationship with prose you know so like you know go for it and I think that's also again you know challenging yourself is good write something that's a hundred words write something you know that's you know a different version of a drabble like you've got the double drabbles you've got you know th- there's different kind of lengths there's different kind of styles and you know when you're really struggling that's her prompts can really be good i don't mm-hmm. do prompts anymore because i've got the kind of brain that just will run away without me and i kind of left hanging on for dear life <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be kind of be careful because otherwise i'll just like get so distracted and i think I mean, of course, the obligatory thing that I have to say here is no advice fits every writer. You know, um, you'll find a lot of advice that says, you must do this, you must do that. And, you know, it's you'll find your own way. Keep going, keep writing. Like, it doesn't matter if it's not something that you're willing to share, just keep on writing. You know, you've got to like exercise this creative muscles and just engage with it in some way. And, you know, it may be that okay you're not going to write the you know 200,000 word epic but you do the most fantastic travels you know Mm -hmm. I think people forget that like we all have different skills like I mean I've written a good number of fics but as I've said you know I I certainly am not someone that can really write AUs you know Mm -hmm. I have a I sort of know what I'm, I'm good at and what I enjoy and other people though are fantastic at those things some people can do a bit of everything you know I know like for all the things I can't do I know that I can do a number of different lengths I can do the drabbles and the pickups and the mid lengths and all that kind of thing so you know it's, it's figuring out you know what's comfortable and if you're trying to challenge yourself go for it enjoy it but if it's not enjoyable try something else and again just basically keep doing it in whatever way you can just keep doing it and you know to acknowledge that sort of no matter what people say writer's block is a real thing so when it is really hard be kind to yourself because there will be a real reason behind it and if you don't know what that reason is that's okay too I think that gets forgotten a lot as well there's different camps some who do believe in writer's block and some who don't and I think whatever writer's block may be and maybe it's a collection of different things a lot of writers have experienced distress where they can't get things on the page so I think for first-time writers it's really important to know that if that scary moment happens you're not alone you're really really not I like to try and reach out and read a variety of different things about it. And you'll, you might find an exercise or something that helps you find a way back at of writer's block. Because that's, it's a scary place to. Be. And I think, you know, if there's one more thing to say, and this feels really corny, but it's the thing that comes to mind, is what Dumbledore says to Hagrid when they're in Hagrid's hut in the Goblet of Fire. That, you know, if he's waiting there for universal approval, he's going to be waiting there a very long time. So, you know, write what you want to write and just go mm-hmm. for it. Like, truly, really just go for it. I think that's the
0: best thing writers can do. Great. Great. <laughs> right. Well, Marshmallow McGonagall, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute joy
1: to speak to you. It really, really has. It's been wonderful to talk about Snape. It's been wonderful to talk about Tonks as well. It's been wonderful to be able to share these stories. And um, it's been an honor to be here. I, I've listened to your other episodes. And they're absolutely wonderful. So thank you very, very much.
0: Well, the pleasure is all mine. So. <laughs> I, I loved hearing about your writing process and also you reading your work. Thank you.
1: It's this is what I mean when you get writers going we tend not to shut up so <laughs> thank you very That's... much for giving me this space
0: <laughs> oh well, thank you and okay we will we'll have links to all the stories on our additional reading page <laughs> Okay. well thank you very much goodbye goodbye Enjoyed our discussion. Thanks again to Marshmallow McGonigal for appearing on the show. Check out the episode graphic to see the great piece, Heal Her, by Mad Fantasy, that we talked about. We'll have that and some great fix by Marshmallow McGonigal on our website at snakechatpodcast.com. And here we must say goodbye. We wish we didn't have to, but it hasn't escaped our notice that life isn't fair. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Tumblr and Twitter, email us or leave a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you support us on coffee to help defray costs of production many thanks to nix for continued work on our website at snakechatpodcast.com be sure to check out the care of magical shippers podcast thanks for listening until next time stay snarky